Hello, I'm Anna Serene and you're listening to Berlinale's House of Talents. Wes's process is, is, I always think of him as an additive director, you know, he's constantly adding detail all the way through the process, I believe right into editing and post-production. Wes had said always it's in the style of the 60s and 70s, but in the future. So do something with that. He likes to push the boundaries. He wants his stop frame movies to have the same feel as his live action movies. You know, sometimes I would say to him, you know, actually physics tells us that we can't do this. And he always says, just show me what you can do. At Talents, we like to take the time to understand the how and why of filmmaking. Today, we take you closer to the people and crafts behind Wes Anderson's visionary cinema. An exacting and detail-obsessed director, Anderson has directed more than 10 feature films, most notably Grand Budapest Hotel and Isle of Dogs. Both films opened the Berlinale in 2014 and 2018 respectively, and the later won him a silver bear as Best Director. His most recent feature, The French Dispatch, is due to be screened at Cannes this summer. But beyond the man himself, the work of this genius is served by an array of talented professionals, some of whom have been guests at Berlinale Talents. With them, we can delve into his live action and animated features to explore questions of storyboarding, prop making and cinematography in the company of moderator Andrew Amundsen. We begin with storyboarder extraordinaire Jay Clark, who tells us about this visual workflow behind the stop-motion animation Isle of Dogs. Japanese art was a constant source of inspiration, and Jay here talks about woodblock prints and Akiro Kurosawa's emblematic camera movements, both of which were essential to his storyboarding practice. You know, when Wes first got in touch about Isle of Dogs, he said that Kurosawa was, was going to be the real you know, driving influence. <laughs> but um, specifically early Kurosawa, because everyone's sort of aware of those the Seven Samurai and, and the more, the later films. But there's this whole sort of back history of Kurosawa, which we were able to just jump into and um, really spend time with a master of cinema. So that's my plan. We will spend time with a master of cinema and I'll somehow show you how that fed into Isle of Dogs. Um, First off uh, was this idea, it's crazy to think this was back in 2017, but the, the, one of the main influences were Japanese woodblock prints. Wes said if, if somehow the animatic and the storyboards could, could look like Japanese woodblock prints. So I went to the VNA and really studied the line work and um, just the characters and the settings. And already I could see if this is going to be this world with the world of stop motion, I could, you could kind of get an idea of what the, this weird fusion was going to be. Um, so, and they're, they're inherently cinematic anyway. They're kind of almost like camera moves, you know, the way the eye is drawn down to that whirlpool of activity. And I was struck by the fact that, you know, Wes Anderson is very much known for how he moves the camera in a particular way. And so comparing that the Japanese woodblock prints with how he moves the camera. So these are a few examples of, of storyboards of how you, you begin in one area and you move the camera to give the audience some more information. And, you're, and just real quick, you're, you're drawing these, these, these full boards so that the, you can send them to the editor who's going to do the camera moves for the animatic, yeah? That's right. The editor um, is a chap. We've worked together on all three projects now, starting with Grand Budapest, and uh, he's called Edward Bursch. 
And he's a sort of After Effects genius. Um, somehow we're able to supply him with these uh, with this artwork and with the animation poses, and he starts to edit this thing, and, and it slowly builds from there. Um, so again, with the Japanese woodblock prints, you can see the almost camera moving left and right. Um, so that was fun. And I include these really just as, a, as an example of, say, how you can take the subject matter of your film and somehow start to Im impose it on the, the actual work, and that, that that will somehow let you get closer to that zeitgeist of... Um, in this instance, you know, Japanese cinema. Um, and, how did, and how did it work when you were, when, was it a back and forth with Wes a little bit, you know? You, oh yeah, a lot of back and forth. <laughs> yeah, okay. And so For it, sure. you, you bring him something, you talk about something. And what, were the, what were the things that floated to the top for you? Well, he, his scripts are very um, detailed and prepared and almost like a little novel. And so the procedure that, that we go through, because I was on Isle of Dogs for two years, so that's, you know, the film only lasts for, um, I'm not even sure, but it doesn't last for two years. <laughs> but what we do over that process is we make, um, you know, quite a lot, a few versions of the film. And you're always trying to find the best version of a shot, of a scene. And so that's where the time is spent. And when Wes, Wes has time, he's able to thumbnail. Um, when he doesn't, there's shot lists that you know that uh, i then sketch up and he reacts to and you know you just sort of go from there really yeah and i'm not, we're not seeing it here but i remember from before that wes in his detailed descriptions also had his own little thumbnails you know so yeah he's always he's always done going all the way back to rushmore i think he's he's always thumbnailed on the script and that's a very sort of he he's i guess he's of that school of filmmakers the the hitchcocks the the spielbergs and the kurosawas that um that did use that tool as a way to, like you said, communicate mm -hmm. ideas, really. Um, you know, which brings us nicely into Kurosawa because he, he, he storyboarded and um, he had storyboarders. And it was really a way of, um, you know, getting to some of those images that, like I was saying to Andrew, some of these Kurosawa films have lasted generations. And some of these images, you know, the fact that we're still talking about them tonight, um, it's, it's, it's interesting that his process, you know, began with sketching, and I think he wanted to be a painter when he was younger. So um, this is an early film called uh, "The Men Who Tread on the Tiger's Tail," and um, I'll just play a little clip, and then I'll talk about how it how it kind of fed into the frame. He sort of constructs a lot of these shots. So this is a sort of example from a shot from Isle of Dogs, where you have that very extreme um, foreground layering. Um, with the detail and what's interesting it, it really starts to make you think about the depth of the shot um, yeah. and I always think anytime you, you can storyboard and, and almost want to climb into the storyboard in a way and get in there and go find out what's that what's going on in that robot dog's head but you you really want to sort of draw the audience um, audience in so again another example of of this sort of extreme extreme layering that we brought in but yeah as i mentioned curacao did his own storyboards and in fact did a lot of them with color um, and this is a quote uh, him explaining it was a way for him to clearly grasp the visual image that he was after storyboard is interesting because it, it brings us on to this idea of how you would use nature in the um in the shot he would often do this because there wouldn't be very much going on in the, in, the ca in the actual shop itself. The character would be very still. And he would use, like, wind and, and sounds and, um, you know, the grass and the trees would blow. And it was a way of sort of introducing movement into a static frame. So we can, Andrew, we can talk a little bit about um, 
the blocking of characters and stuff. And we, there's a few things I can move through quite quickly, and then maybe if there's questions at the end, we can always circle back to. Right. Yeah, okay. But um, the one thing that we, you know, that I did do is watch a lot of um, films such as The Bad Sleep World, and if you guys have seen that, and. The way that um, I often work is that if I can and if I have the time is, you know, really study, look at these films, look at scenes. Um, in this particular case, look at how Kurosawa was dealing with large groups of characters in shot because it's very easy for a, for a shot to suddenly become quite messy and disorganized. And that wasn't the way that Kurosawa worked. You know, it worked in a very sort of specific way. Um, so it's, it's interesting to sort of look at how he stages large groups and the same the way that Wes approaches it is that it's very choreographed and um, everybody hits their mark. And you've done some nice work in, in your presentation also about character, the development of character that you also, in your work as a storyboard with Wes, helping develop the characters, you know, so from an early stage. Sure. I mean, if we can get back to some images. Oh yeah. Can we go back the laptop, to the laptop? The super? Um, so I can, I can talk about that in terms of the movement of the camera because mm -hmm. it's really the characters that should dictate that, you know, but you shouldn't just kind of um, move the camera willy-nilly. It should be somehow tied into the, the sort of emotions of the characters. So one shot I remember um, really being quite fond of is the, the birth of the puppies towards the end of the film. And again, sort of tying it back to Kurosawa. And, and it's interesting, Nikki, that you're always, you're quite limited with your cuts, aren't you? You often do long takes, very long takes, in yeah. fact. And it's a very sort of, um, you know, a great, fantastic old Hollywood tradition. And, and Kurosawa was very much a believer in that, that every shot in a way should have a beginning, a middle and an end. Um, and that it's, you know, telling a story. So, um, yeah, as you say, Andrew, a lot of the character designs are sort of they're, they're beginning, but they're not quite there, and, and the animatic is also beginning. So sometimes you have a period of time where you're just sketching what the characters might be, and you have that feedback from Wes, and he decides and evolves, and you know maybe take that nose from that dog and put it on that you know character and stuff. But um, so here we see the birth of the puppy, and we see Atari coming in. So the beginning of the shot is really all about the puppies. And then you have the middle, which is much more about Atari and the caring side of his nature. And again, that kind of interaction between Spots and Atari. And then you have um, the section of the shot where the curtains start to blow in the wind and you reveal in the deep, deep, deep background um, Chief at the tiller of the ship. And then these are storyboards in order to be able to get us to that point of moving the camera through past Atari in chief. Um, and so, as I say, developing all the, the, the sea and the stars and um, all the different dogs and just putting all this mixture together that Wes wants into this big soup um, and making these camera moves. But, but I did think that for me was a real, it's always a, and again, this is a learning process, you're always learning, but that whole idea of a short having a beginning, a middle and an end and somehow having helping the transition to the next shot, um, I just find fascinating. Then finally, I hope by now you've spotted the, the key word in all of these elements of movement and, and, and just the fact that, um, you know, they call them motion pictures for a reason. And, you know, that that is the thing that we sort of took away from Kurosawa, myself especially, is this, this sense of mov movement and motion. 
So um, this final point is just to to really discuss the idea that you can have movement in the cut. And as you all know, this idea of cutting on the action of something in a wide and then cutting in close on the same action just helps make a, an invisible cut. And um, I always think that every time you make that cut, you're asking the audience to make a big leap with you. And so if you can help them on that journey, even the word cut is very violent. So um, it, it's fun to see how Kurosawa does that. Um, so yes, this just to tie that back into Isle of Dogs, there's a scene at the beginning where Chief is introducing all the, the pack and it's very rapid cut through all the different dog tags. And um, so yeah, this is, this is a very fascinating thing that you can build that tempo in a film. Uh, you can have calm moments and then you can have very, very tense, tense moments. I mean, figuring out the timing, it's, it's, this, uh, it gives Wes this opportunity to really figure out exactly, I mean, and I think this, I think maybe you'd said this before, he had learned a lot of lessons on Fantastic Mr. Fox. And, and, and so he stepped up his storyboarding and the animatics for, uh, for Isle of Dogs, is that right? Yeah, they used it on Grand Budapest, which, I mean, you do storyboarding live action, but it's rare that you make animatics. Um, and French Dispatch, which is out in a few months time, there's a whole animatic for that. And that's just his procedure, that it's his chance to, to really sort of design the film in his own head um, before you get the pressures, as I'm sure you know, Nikki, of, of reality and budgets and, and teams of people and stuff. It's Wes's vision, Wes's project, Wes drives it, um, obviously works on the script in, in, in much detail. And in the first film, Grand Budapest had able to spend a lot of time, you know, thumbnailing. So it was really just helping take those thumbnails, make them much more detailed and animated. Um, and then through Isle of Dogs, obviously that was a longer project, much more animatic was needed. And so when he couldn't thumbnail, then I would thumbnail and then suggest he would react. Um, quite often what he does is takes a bit of an image and moves it around and uh, move that there. And so it's very sort of back and forth. But uh, really, you know, he's... He, he wants you to contribute, certainly, as all the members of the team. You're not just supposed to sit there passive. You're supposed to help and contribute and, and make the process work smoothly. But it's certainly Wes's vision. I'm, I'm there to help that onto paper and into the edit. Um, and so you certainly can make suggestions, but he's, he's the boss. Uh, yeah, but uh, on the Isle of Dogs, you showed like the f uh, storyboard and it had like a painting, a whole painting. So you do the painting or Wes is more responsible, like he says what's in the world or you just suggest and create it. Like the whole, you know, camera work, you can, you can see the frame just only part of it. So yeah. So Wes also creates the worlds by itself, like all of the details? Well, he has, I mean, again, it's really, it's, he's exploring that's what the whole, you know, we don't make these animatics sort of for the sake of it. It's, it's a process that he's exploring. You have the production designer who's involved. He's starting a whole area of, um, of development and research, and it's all feeding in to the storyboard. And I believe every shot, the way he works now, is every shot that we animate, make an animatic of is also made as a piece of concept art. So that's a whole other area that, that I'm not involved in. The, the production designer and the concept artists work up every every shot. And really, Wes's process is, is a, I always think of him as an additive director. You know, he's constantly adding detail all the way through the process, you know, I believe right into editing and post-production. He's uh, constantly adding these details in. 
So as a storyboarder, you do what you can and you try and contribute, but um, it's certainly fun. In a digital age dominated by special effects and a fix-it-in-the-post mentality, Simon Weiss's models stand out. A Berlin-based miniature maker, modeler and prop maker, Simon here talks about scaling his work to the whimsical world of Wes Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel, as well as the challenges behind combining practical and special effects, a hallmark of Anderson's filmmaking. So we had this um, drawing by one of the favorite uh, painters and, uh, uh, from uh, Wes Anderson. He's called Carl Sprague. And the only thing we had to, to start on these miniatures was this drawing and a really existing hotel, which is in Karlsbad, Carlo Vivari in Czechia. Uh, but we had no, no specific drawings or plans. They just gave us this drawing, some references here, and our end result as a miniature was this. Um, here you can see the size. This is this is Alex, by the way, who did also this uh, this model. There it was about four meters wide, and uh, the funny thing, while we have built it, uh, uh, the art department came up with some informations, and they said, "Okay, we sent you two color references, two pinks." And when we got the color references, uh, references, I said, "Oh no, we can't use these these colors. It's uh, it's awful." And in the in in the end, you paint it and you 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 watch a bit in different towns. You have houses and hotels uh, with this kind of colors. So we had a visit from from Wes. He just came to see us once in, in, in this film because he's very discreet and uh, uh, he, he respects our work, but we have a kind of freedom to, to do it. I, I, yeah. I just, I'm curious, when he walks in, I can imagine it's like a kid walking into a candy store. It made the, there's a new toy. With, I mean, how was it? What was his reaction when he got to see this thing that had been in his imagination, but now it's in front yeah, of him? Yeah, it's on one side. It's like, like a kid, and he's playing with, with stuff. But on the other side, it has to be very professional. So we are speaking about very specific things, how it has to be uh, in the film afterwards. For example, this, he, he didn't want to shoot this in a studio. Uh, that's why we went outside. He wanted to shoot this in natural light. That is a very important thing for him. We were lucky because it, it was not raining or snowing. <laughs> um, yeah, then we had uh, other models to do for this film like this observatory. We just had this drawing and a reference from, from an observatory in Switzerland. That's the drawing, and that is our model be built in something like a 12th scale. Um, and here you can see the, 
the, the, the details we, we have on, on the model, like these rocks. Because when people uh, are talking about model making, uh, a lot of people think uh, it's, it's playing with uh, railways. And, but we do something else. It goes much further. Um, we, have to, we have to, even with the paint on these, we have to be very detailed and, and respect the right scale of the model. Uh, just two quick questions on yeah. that. If, if, can you, is, there any, is, there anything, is there such thing as too much detail in your work? Uh, yeah, sometimes, because my, my model make they tend to, uh, to, to work every detail and you don't see it on camera. Hmm. They will work the, the, the behind the back of this model, but we don't need it. <laughs> <laughs> but they are so passionate. So, hmm. uh, but you, uh, I think you can't go... Uh, you always have to go very far, really very hmm. far to make it believable. Yes, and, yeah. and, and just because I know you're talking about yeah. scale, is there anything that, you know, for, for any of us who are not working uh, in this world of miniatures, how, how is scale constantly changing and how is it used for film? Uh, I would say that uh, now with the techniques uh, today, we, we have to build as big as possible. Mm -hmm. In the 50s or 60s, we had small scales and, and when you watch on some films, you, d you say, no, okay, that looks strange and because they were working with scales like uh, 40th or 50th. Now this one is a 12th scale. And when you have some elements, uh, real elements combined to this, like fire, water, uh, smoke, if the, the miniature is too small, it doesn't work. <laughs> so this is the final result. They, uh, they have shot these mountains somewhere in Switzerland, just plates, and then our model was co combined in. Um, the thing is with Wes is that he goes as far as he can with uh, practical effects. So before he says, okay, we have no other solution than, uh, uh, than making, doing some CGI in, with, the, with, with the visual effects. We try to build everything in, in miniature and practical effects, and then, uh, but in the end, you have to combine and to composite these, these kind of pictures. Can you talk, I mean, as, as you're going through this, yeah. the, the, the choice, the choice that was made to use miniatures, models, uh, instead of CGI, uh, it, as an artistic choice that that Wes made, and and, the, and I'm curious about the freedom that it gave you when it doesn't have to mm -hmm. necessarily blend seamlessly into the other live action, but it yeah. is its own. It's it's because okay, Wes is very special, but you have also other directors who now come back to this kind of of, of miniature sets. I think it's because you, you can do nearly everything now with CGI and even when I show this to people who are working only with CGI they sometimes they don't understand they say why are you building miniatures uh, it's so easy to do this on a computer and I say yeah but we have a kind of imperfection and mistakes sometimes in our in our miniatures uh, and it's just an as you said an artistic choice to do it like that uh, um, uh, I I had a 
I had a lot of discussions with with other directors. They wanted to do miniatures, but then the producer comes and said it's it's too expensive. Uh, in the end, it's not so expensive, and even CGI is is expensive. So, as you said, it's it's an artistic choice, and uh, they West trusts us as model makers that the ideas he has will be done as he, he wishes it. <laughs> okay, that's it for Grand Budapest Hotel. And we jump to Isle of Dogs, which is totally different because we had a live-action film before with some miniature sets. Isle of Dogs is an, a puppet animation film. And it's, it's so different because it's... Uh, it's four years' work. We worked about two years on this, uh, but uh, you know you have to uh, you have to write a script first, then uh, storyboarding, then uh, the first thing is voices. All the voices of the actors are done before everything. Uh, so uh, it's a totally different work. I, I worked on another stop motion film before, but a very small one, and this one it was. However, a bit the first uh, time for me and a new challenge, but a very interesting challenge. The thing is, uh, it was shot in London in Three Miles Studios, and they had a, a, a big crew of uh, set builders and model makers there building miniature sets uh, for the animators, for puppets uh, who are about a scale of sixth scale or seventh scale. It's like a Barbie doll, more or less. So they have built about 200 sets in London, and they asked me to set up a crew here uh, to make different models. All the, all the miniature sets with landscapes, cities, in a much smaller scale, where on these sets we had no animation or some very uh, easy animation it's 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 wasn't it's not the same work we're not working in in the same scale it's uh, it was two different uh, mm -hmm. workshops and the most important uh, we did on on this was the famous megazaki city and here we go again we, with a drawing done by Carl Sprague uh, that's more or less all we had to do this set. We, we had the, uh, this drawing and a lot of references from, uh, from buildings from Japan, uh, like, uh, like villages. And most of the time we had these skyscrapers uh, in brutal um, uh, concrete from the 50s, 60s and 70s. So it was interesting because we had to do our own research for all this. Uh, um, uh, and in the end, we, ha we had the result of this. Um, Megasaki was a city of the future, but it was done in this style from the... It was, it was done in the style of the, of, of the, of the whole film. You know, it's, uh, it, it, it was always... Wes had said always it's uh, in the style of the... 60s and 70s, but in the future. <laughs> so do something with that. <laughs> uh, and then you have, uh, for example, we made this um, uh, this old uh, old town in the front, 
And we, in the beginning, we had it really like an old town. And he, he said, no, it looks, too, it looks too old. It has to be an old town, like when you go in the city and there are plenty of tourists uh, having a look at it like it was before. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I show you some technical things, how we did it. Uh, as we had no ground plan and no no from from the art department, we had to set it up ourselves. There was a ground plan, but talking about mistakes, uh, it didn't work. The ground plan didn't work, so I decided to make volumes in polystyrene to put this in front of camera and to see how it works. Does it, so we could move the, uh, the the different buildings, and for example, the the old town in, uh, town in front is a scale about thirty thirty five. Then you go further back with the uh, with the other buildings, about fifty scale, and we end up in a one hundred two hundred scale in the background. So little by little, we have built all these. Buildings about 150. And is there anybody checking in with you at this point as you're figuring these these you're figuring out these you know you worked through the mistake yeah. and now you're trying to you're figuring this out. What 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 I do is nearly every day I make pictures of this and I send it to the art department mm -hmm. and Wes and production so so they they know what we're doing not drinking coffee all the time but we're doing something <laughs> <laughs> and. Yeah, and that's the process. And in the process, sometimes it happens, they say, oh, no, this doesn't work, so uh, we have to change. But it's, it's also difficult. They, don't, they were in London, we were here in Berlin, so communication is difficult. Even with the internet and everything, it's a different thing when you see somebody uh, in front of you talking about things than... Uh, than uh, always explaining th through emails and, and stuff. All these buildings we did were reused in other scenes in the film. Because this scene, I mean, it's about two seconds. You see it, it's two seconds uh, beginning and then it disappears. But then uh, they took all the buildings to have them always in the background. So the the big thing with Wes is that uh, normally we we would take some pictures of the buildings and just Photoshop it, and that's it. No, we had a camera move on this, so when a building disappeared on one side, he took the building and just put it on the other side. So it's a way of doing it. Yeah. <laughs> um, hi, I'm Marcelo, also in production design. And I'm curious because, um, you know, we heard a lot from cinematographer and it sounds like the, the collaboration is direct between you and Wes Anderson in both films. But uh, I'm curious how active the dialogue was between you and the production designer and how much of the collaboration was between you two as opposed to you and Wes Anderson. I mean, um, you know, usually they have this like clear hierarchy, yeah. but it sounds often that it was um, between you and Wes direct as opposed to you and the production yes. designer. Yes, I must say that the, the, the Wes Anderson films is not like all the other films. You have direct contact with him. I worked on other films where you, haven't, you, you never meet even the director. It's just the art department. And you don't meet the production designer, you just meet, uh, as you say, in the hierarchy, uh, people, assistants. And uh, all, all his films are different. He, uh, I mean, I, in first place, I 
handle with the production designer uh, on Isle of Dogs and Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, it's Adam Stockhausen. He's really fantastic. And, and we have quite a friendly approach, approach now and a confidence each other. But in the end, it's always Wes who decides what he wants. Even Adam is asking Wes... Uh, Uh, we are not sure about this, and Wes will give the, the final answer. But it's not like this in every film. Chicken Run, Wallace and Gromit, and Grand Budapest Hotel are among Tristan Oliver's credits as an animation cinematographer. A long-standing collaborator of Wes Anderson, Tristan here talks about the differences between preparing Fantastic Mr. Fox and Isle of Dogs, and his work on set creating moods for a director who knows exactly what he wants. A particularly challenging endeavour when a scene involving 50 lighting experts is meant to look as though it was set up by a single hand. Today we have some material that we want to jump into, uh, fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, and before we do that, I just, maybe you can also say a, an introduction to how you Uh, got into that project, you know, how you went from where you were uh, working, doing some films with Ardman Entertainment, and then moving in towards your relationship, working relationship with uh, Wes Anderson. Yes. Well, I mean, it was, it was a peculiar process, actually. I, I had, I, I left Ardman after Curse of the Were-Rabbit. Um, and I heard, I heard that Fox was, was shooting in London. And I, I went to see the, the producer and showed them my reel and, eventually you know Wes saw my reel and I got the job and what I didn't know at the time was that they had actually already got a DP for that movie oh wow uh, and I had no idea uh and they then you know that guy that guy got the got the boot <laughs> uh, and then you know we we moved into this process of working with Wes but what you have to understand is that at that point Wes Anderson had never worked in stop frame mm. and we had never worked with Wes Anderson and so that that first movie was a process of getting to know each other and getting to know how he works. So it was a, you know, a huge learning curve for us mm. uh, and, and was on a, on occasion very difficult, I think for both him and for us, you know, trying to find a language and a way of working to get, you know, that very exact vision that he has onto the screen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and Yeah, so, you know, we got through it. And then, you know, when Isle of Dogs came along, we already had that language, we already had that relationship, and it was a very different kind of production. But, but what Fantastic Mr. Fox is really is a, is a learning curve. Did you know Wes's work before going into uh, Cold Calling in on this? Um, yeah, I mean, I knew it a little bit. I mean, I knew Bottle Rocket and I knew Rushmore, um, but I didn't, I didn't really know it, no. Mm -hmm. I mean, I... You know, by that point, he didn't have a sufficient body of work for people to be able to pronounce something like Wes Anderson. You know, I mean, he he was still kind of building his building his his catalogue at that point. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, going back to what I said about Wrong Trousers, the great thing about Fantastic Mr. Fox is that you know he wouldn't let us do any of the new stuff in it. You know, everything had to be done in, to camera. You know, so things that we kind of long ago got rid of you know like making flames and smoke and things like that i mean you know we were we were shooting live action elements or we were making them in cg but he wanted everything made in front of the camera so it was um yeah it was pretty kind of hardcore back to your roots filmmaking in that instance that's great and, and normally how does it work when you when you go as a dp as a cinematographer a project uh 
how does it work when you, you go to a director and then how does it work differently when working with Wes, let's say? Okay, well, I mean, it's, you know, the director is the, is the guy or the woman who has the vision, you know, so you, you're always uh, paying, you're, you're, you know, you're a servant to that process, if you, if you like, yourself in the production design. Um, typically, I would put together a mood board, some clips, some stills, and I would sit with the director and offer, offer images up and say, you know, I was thinking about this for this sequence or this for this sequence, you know, what do you think? Um, and we would sort of come to a place where we kind of knew what the film was going to look like. Um, with Wes, uh, that's, that's very much predetermined. You know, Wes knows exactly what he wants the film to look like in his head. And so as a cinematographer, your, your job is to get it out of his head and onto the screen. Um, and the, the collaboration in terms of how is it going to look Mm -hmm. uh, is, 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 a, is a much smaller part of it. But the collaboration is him trusting you to have the skill set to get the image right and get it up there. Uh, and he's very, very exacting. Uh, you know, he, he, he knows within his own style what works and what doesn't work. So, you know, there, there's no corner cutting. Um, there's, there's, no, there's no chance of him going, yeah, okay, that'll do. Mm. because it won't do it, it has to be absolutely right and you know we, we we can work on some sequences for a very very long time just sort of finding that path to what makes it right uh and makes it coherent you know because mm. it's it is a very precise feel that that you're working towards so and, and tell me with with fantastic mr fox you, you talked about being at ardman on round or on trousers and some of these other films with six or seven yeah. people in a small space now what are we looking at you know because still i think people and even myself, you, you imagine it as a small little world with, you know, elves coming around and moving things around. But talk about the scale and scope of, of this. Well, um, we, we had already gone big at Artman. I mean, mm -hmm. we, we went big for Chicken Run and mm -hmm. Curse the Rabbit. And so, you know, a, a typical modern day stop frame animation stage contains a, about 50 shooting units. So you're, you're looking at 50 sets, 50 cameras, um, and 50 animators probably, um, working away simultaneously to, to get this film made because, you know, animation takes a long time. It's, uh, I think there's a, a feeling that it's slow, but actually it's not slow. It, it just takes a long time. Everyone's going as fast as they possibly mm. can. And to service that size of stage, you know, the entire crew is about 300 people and wow. that, encompasses you know construction pub making wig making cinematography editing vfx you know all under the same roof yeah. um but with a you know a lot of real estate you know my crew do typically 10 to 15 kilometers a day around the stages so it's it's a big wow. busy environment okay wow um and so if as, as it is your job to communicate the vision um to the rest of your crew i mean so you have lighting and, and working with all these different departments uh, as your role as the DP. I'm going to click through some of your pictures here, but if you could talk about how you manage uh, 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 this, I think you told me at one point, this, this idea that one one hand makes it, you know, is that, uh, or can you talk about this this concept? I mean, when I have a stage of that size, you know, I, I typically light myself with my gaffer, maybe 15, 16 of those sets. Um, but I obviously, I can't do 50. I, I mean, I just don't, I haven't got the bandwidth to do 50. So I have a couple of other guys who like for me. But, yeah. you know, 
as you say, it has to look like one hand made it, it ha- and it, that hand is my hand. So although those guys are very talented and given half a chance would go off and do something fantastic of their own, mm. it has to look like it's my fantastic stuff, not their fantastic stuff. So I, <laughs> right. I give very, you know, very strict notes about what I want it to look like, and they shoot tests, and I we watch the tests projected, and I give them notes so that the film feels coherent. Right. Because um, we're, we're not shooting in sequence, you know, we're shooting out of sequence, and I, I, in my head, I know what I want the film to look like, and I quite often make... Um, charts which have got a color palette or a mood palette or a time of day palette so i can pull up any sequence in pre-production and i know what time of day it is i know what the emotional point of the story arc is at that point so i can you know i can give quite detailed notes about what i want stuff to look like uh, you know sometimes even just a, a simple thing like where the sun is mm-hmm. uh, and how high the sun is in the sky or in a, in a lot of wes films no sun in the sky, you know, it's very flat, cloudy light, right? Which you right. like, to um, but just yeah, being ready to, to, to share it, knowing where you're at at any given point of time when they come to you, exactly. And that that also goes with, with the art department as well, you know. So, I have a, a very close relationship with the art department because obviously, what they build is what we shoot, and this right. is the, the guys making the sewer tunnel for the right, the, uh, and so, and this is you. You're, you're working with them all along the way, even from the designs at the beginning. Oh, and from day one and yeah. every day, you know, yeah. they call yeah. me into the art department and they go, well, how about this? And we'll talk about color and we'll talk about texture and, you know, the, yeah. you know maybe something has been made too shiny or the color won't work on camera, you know. So we're right. so constantly testing and also photographing stuff to make sure that it survives when you project it. Because if you've got something really tiny, you know, yeah. I did a movie with a mobile phone in it that was about, this big mm. but there there was a full frame of the mobile phone so when it's projected of course it's it's 15 meters high <laughs> right so, you know it needs to bear scrutiny at that kind of magnification so yeah. quite often props go back for a, another go if, if they're not if mm. they're not quite perfect enough and can you talk about your relationship um uh, when you're working with the uh, so you have the props you have the the, the animators the the puppeteers that are working and how's that communication going as you're moving along through? Yeah, it's a sort of rolling process. So, if, you know, if you imagine just like an empty stage mm. um, and then the set comes in and the set dressers come in and whilst they're dressing the set, we light around them. So they're putting in all the paint finishes and the props and things like that. Right. Uh, and so we have that communication at, at that point. And if there's anything serious, you know, it could be that something needs completely chopping off and rebuilding just because when you get it in front of the camera, it's not quite what you expected when you saw it in the workshop. So we, we have that continuing dialogue. And then the, the set is, is brought to a point of readiness. So it's lit, the motion control is sorted out, any DMX lighting changes are sorted out. Then the animator comes in and we talk to the animator about, you know, where the action is within the frame. And if there's any motion control uh, with the camera moving, mm with the puppet then the motion control operator has that conversation with the animator and they work together so that um the camera doesn't lose track of the puppet or the puppet doesn't lose track of the camera so everything sort of fits together organically and looks real and again you know this constant thing i keep saying that the process doesn't get in the way of the story Mm -hmm. you know you're not aware that the camera's 
moving robotically and you're not aware that the characters are actually being manipulated by an animator you know right. they're just just a dog you know so you talked about you talked about fantastic mr fox being a learning curve um so when you started to when you knew you'd be working again with wes on isle of dogs what did you want to do differently i mean what did you learn what did you want to do differently how, how did you prepare and can you can you give us a sense of what is your pre-production uh process like well um i mean wes rang me and asked asked me to do the job and you know that that was enough really he sent me the script and he sent me the first 12 minutes of the animatic um if you don't if anyone out there doesn't know what an animatic is it's basically a storyboard that has been shot to length so it's a sort of it's a rough 2d version of the movie that's been timed out with the voice track on it so you get a, a rough idea of what what the film looks like um so he, he came to me and he came to several of us who had worked on Fantastic Mr. Fox because, as I said, you know, this, this long, painful process of Fox had mm. resulted joyfully mm. uh, in this complete mutual trust. So, you know, we, we made it to the end and then he knew we could do it. So that, that whole kind of learning process of him for us and us for him wasn't there anymore. So we had a much more open dialogue with him. And it was a, you know, a, it, it was a much more relaxed production from that point of view. Nice. And, and because there were no, uh, you know, no, nothing he could do would surprise us or shock us, you know, because we were entirely ready for it. So right. it just became, how do we do this? You know, which is a great place to be because challenges are actually quite fun. Mm. And, you know, he, he likes to push the boundaries. Um, I mean, even with animation, there are problems with with shooting animation because everything's so small. You know, it's there. There are many, many issues with the photography and and with the scale that make it very hard. But he wants to take it a step further. You know, he he wants his stop frame movies to have the same feel as his live action movies. So you know, working with very wide lenses and very deep focus, mm. uh, which is super hard in animation. So. Right. You know, sometimes I would say to him, you know, actually physics tells us that we can't do this. And he always says, just show me what you can do. Yeah. Okay. And we'll see whether we can just push it a little bit further and break physics. Seeing the world through Wes Anderson's films triggers a childlike feeling of wonderment. Yet the ingenuity and skill of the craftsman we've heard from is what provides his films with such playfulness. If you want to hear from a range of other engaging filmmakers we've had the chance to talk to over the years, subscribe to our channel and visit our website at berlinale-talents.de where you can also find today's talks in full. This podcast is brought to you in cooperation with Goethe Institute. It is produced by 4000 Hertz. Our editor is Vincent Forster. Music is by Rutger Reiners and project management is by Christine Trostrum and Florian Weghorn. And it was presented by me, Anna Serene. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.